Today on episode 19 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to go through my five favorite reported decisions from the first half of 2016. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 19th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a proud partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. I am the Morris in Morris & Stone, in case you didn't figure that out. If you're new to the podcast, this is the place we discuss all things slap. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700. Or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. Morris at toplawfirm.com. I recently received an interesting call where an attorney is handling a legal malpractice case against another attorney. Apparently, the attorney is in trouble for filing a slap. He filed the slap, lost the anti-slap motion that followed, and now his client is suing him for malpractice because he's on the hook for all those attorney's fees. But here's the fun part, at least for me, probably not so much for the attorney. In reviewing the file, the malpractice attorney found an email to the attorney in question stating that he should run the complaint past me before filing it to make sure it would not run afoul of the anti-slap statute. The attorney was calling to see if I'd ever been retained to review the complaint. Now, I don't really know if the author of that email knew me or just did an internet search and said, well, here's an attorney who does anti-slap law. But the fact remains that at least in one case, an attorney was sued for malpractice for failing to run a complaint past me before filing it. And if he's ultimately found liable, then I can truthfully report that failing to have me review a complaint before filing it was deemed to be legal malpractice. Yep, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Now, most episodes, I use my own anti-slap motions to illustrate various legal concepts and strategies relating to anti-slap law. But with the middle of 2016 approaching, I thought we'd take a look at some of the reported decisions from earlier this year. I went to Westlaw and searched for the term anti-slap motion. I filtered the results to only show 2016. Westlaw returned eight reported cases. And from those, I picked what I found to be the five most important and interesting. So let's get started. One. This first case was actually published on December 29, 2015, but that's close enough, especially since it involves attorneys, and I find it really interesting. This one is pretty factually intensive, but I promise the others won't require this much detail. The case is Lands v. Goldstone out of the 1st District. This was a malicious prosecution case that started out as a Marvin case. Remember those? A couple wasn't ever married, but one sues under a breach of contract claim, claiming that there was a promise that they would be treated like a spouse. The unmarried couple in question here were Ms. Bolio and Mr. Roncelli. They were together about 18 years, and when they split, Bolio brought a Marvin action against Roncelli. She was seeking to recover half of the community assets. Now, you didn't see it, you couldn't see it, but I did air quotes when I said community assets for reasons you'll see in a few. Bolio was represented by an attorney named Brian Lands. Lands agreed to handle Bolio's case on a contingency basis. The case went to trial, but apparently settled on the third day. Now, pursuant to the settlement, Roncelli agreed to pay Bolio $10,000 in cash, and there was a house that Bolio wanted, so Roncelli agreed to pay off the $106,000 mortgage on that property so Bolio could have it free and clear. So, case settled, and Lands wanted his contingency fee. But Bolio didn't think Lands should get his fee, or at least not the full amount owed. Ultimately, Lands had to bring an action to recover his fees, 
and Bolio returned the favor by filing a cross-complaint. As the Court of Appeal later noted, there had not been one communication from Bolio ever stating that she was dissatisfied with Lanz's work, but as clients will sometimes do when there's a fee dispute, Bolio sued Lanz for malpractice. Bolio found an attorney willing to represent her named Peter Goldstone. Remember, the name of this case is Lanz versus Goldstone, so do you see where this is going? At this point, something very important happened that would later impact the action by Lanz against Goldstone. Bolio didn't answer the complaint by Lanz, so Lanz took her default. Bolio then hired Goldstone, who contacted Lanz and, according to the opinion, demanded that Lanz voluntarily set aside the default. When Lanz refused, Goldstone personally served him with an unfiled cross-complaint for malpractice and threatened to file the cross-complaint unless Lanz and this is the important part, unless Lanz agreed to dismiss his complaint against Bolio and walk away from all of the fees and costs that were owed to Lanz, at least according to the opinion. Lanz still refused to lift the default, even with the threat of a malpractice action. Goldstone successfully obtained relief from the default and then filed the previously provided cross-complaint against Lanz. That cross-complaint contained three causes of action. These are important to note because they impact the anti-slap motion analysis. The three causes of action were breach of fiduciary duty, declaratory relief, and professional negligence. So, we have Lanz suing for his fees, and we have Bolio cross-complaining for breach of fiduciary duty, declaratory relief, and professional negligence. The case proceeded for a while, and Lanz eventually filed a motion for summary judgment on all of the claims in the cross-complaint. As set forth in the opinion, according to Lanz, Goldstone indicated he would continue to prosecute the cross-complaint and threaten to conduct costly discovery, costing more than the action's eventual benefit, all, according to Lanz, to squeeze the settlement before the summary adjudication motion could be heard. Lanz didn't submit to the alleged threats, so instead, Bolio filed bankruptcy before the summary judgment motion could be heard and decided. Now, here's a little procedural fun. As you probably know, if a party files an action to recover damages and then files bankruptcy, the lawsuit becomes an asset of the bankruptcy estate. Presumably, it has value or the debtor would not have filed it. As an asset, it must be listed in the bankruptcy schedules. That can be risky because the trustee then gets to decide whether or not to pursue the case, or the trustee can settle the case to bring money into the estate. Bolio got around all that by simply failing to list the action against Lanz in her schedules. So, when the bankruptcy closed, Lanz immediately filed an ex-party application to reset the hearing on his summary judgment motion. And he brought a motion for judgment on the pleadings, arguing that Bolio could no longer pursue her claims for breach of fiduciary duty and malpractice because she had not listed them in her bankruptcy petition. I'm, I'm starting to like this Lands guy. The same day Lands moved ex parte to reset the motion for summary judgment, Goldstone <laughs> subbed out of the case, leaving Bolio to represent herself. Lands won on both the motion for judgment on the pleadings and the motion for summary judgment, which dealt with the remaining cause of action for declaratory relief. So, Bolio's cross-complaint was gone. Lanz then won a trial on his complaint and was awarded $49,000. In commenting on Bolio's testimony at trial, the trial judge wrote in his statement of decision, This court finds Bolio's testimony incredulous, inflated, spiteful, and lacking all persuasive value. And that takes us to the important stuff. Lanz then sued Goldstone, Bolio's attorney, for malicious prosecution, and Goldstone responded with an anti-slap motion. It appears Lanz sued only Goldstone and not the client, so I'm guessing there was probably some bad blood between these attorneys, but I could be wrong. As I've stated many times, a malicious prosecution action will almost always automatically fall under the slap statute because the plaintiff is suing the defendant for exercising his right of redress. The plaintiff is suing defendant for suing. And I say almost always just to hedge my bet, but I really can't think of a scenario where a malicious prosecution action would not meet the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. 
Uh, Lands and Goldstein agreed on that point, so there was no real challenge to the first prong and the entire analysis related to the second prong of the anti-slap analysis, whether plaintiff had demonstrated a probability of prevailing on the claim. So, was Lands more likely than not to prevail on his malicious prosecution action against Goldstone? Well, to establish a cause of action for malicious prosecution, a plaintiff must plead and prove that the prior action, one, was commenced by or at the direction of the defendant and was pursued to a legal termination in his, plaintiff's favor, two, that it was brought without probable cause, and three, was initiated with malice. Those elements are taken from a Supreme Court case called Bertero v. National General Corp., which is a seminal case on malicious prosecution. A malicious prosecution action against an attorney is usually difficult because the attorney is permitted to rely on the representations of his or her client. With the anti-slap motion, Goldstone chortled, well, you'll never be able to meet those three elements, Lands, because you can't even claim that you prevailed in the action. After all, you didn't prevail on the claims for breach of fiduciary duty or malpractice. Those were dismissed only because they weren't listed in the bankruptcy schedules. That's not a decision on the merits which is one of the elements of malicious prosecution. Well, the chortling was unjustified on a few grounds. As an initial matter, even if what Goldstone said was true, that procedural wins don't count, the fact remained that Lands won his motion for summary judgment on the remaining declaratory relief action. Case law is clear that if you are sued on multiple causes of action and prevail on only one, you can still sue for malicious prosecution on that one cause of action. But setting all of that aside, it just isn't true that procedural victories don't count for purposes of a malicious prosecution action. In a case called Sierra Club Foundation v. Graham, the Court of Appeals stated, When the proceeding terminates other than on the merits, the court must examine the reasons for termination to see if the disposition reflects the opinion of the court or the prosecuting party that the action would not succeed. The court concluded that by failing to list the claims on the bankruptcy schedule, Bolio, or her bankruptcy attorney, effectively abandoned the claims. An abandonment of a claim is a favorable determination for the other side. It's no different than if the claims were voluntarily dismissed. And by the way, this is a quick practice pointer. Many attorneys seem to be unaware of this fact as evidenced by the fact that they dismiss claims without much fanfare. A dismissed claim can be viewed as a victory for the other side for purposes of a malicious prosecution claim. If you're going to dismiss a case, it's always a good idea to do so by way of a walkaway settlement. Contact opposing counsel and ask if his or her client will agree to waive fees and costs in exchange for a dismissal rather than to just dismiss the case. Most parties won't proclaim, no, I want to keep litigating this matter in order to preserve my malicious prosecution action. So back to our elements of malicious prosecution. What about the second element, bringing a case without probable cause? Well, Goldstone argued that he relied on the representations of his client. And Goldstone argued that based on what his client had told him, Goldstone claimed that Bolio told him that as a result of Lanz's representation, Bolio had suffered a net loss. That was kind of a mess, but here's, here's how the logic goes. As a starting point, Bolio was entitled to half the community property. Again, this is their argument. Bolio was entitled to half the community property. Therefore, taking no action at all, she should have ended up with half the community property. So if she settled for less than half, then that was a loss, and Lands obviously didn't do his job. But there was a major problem with that reasoning. There was no community property. This was a Marvin case, and the concepts of community property do not apply. It's basically a breach of contract case. And it was those sort of inconsistencies that the Court of Appeal keyed in on in determining that there was not probable cause to pursue these claims against Lands. As Lands put in his brief... He spent five minutes of research to determine that the rules of community property do not apply to Marvin cases. In the same way, the cross-complaint had alleged that Lands violated Rule of Professional Conduct 3-300 
because his fee agreement took an interest in the recovery, created a charging lien without telling Bolio she should consult another attorney. But Rule 3-300 does not apply to contingency fee agreements because by their very nature, they give the attorney an interest in the recovery. You don't have to tell your client to seek the advice of another attorney every time you enter into a contingency agreement. So what I found really interesting in this opinion was that not only did the court conclude that you could limit a malicious prosecution action to individual causes of action, you could look at the individual allegations. Now, that's not to say you could pursue a malicious prosecution action on a claim on which the plaintiff prevailed, claiming that you disproved various allegations. But at least for purposes of showing a likelihood of succeeding in the face of an anti-slap motion, you can point to the false or defective allegations. Now, as to the final element for malice, and this is important to note, malice can be inferred from a showing that the purpose of the action was for some other reason than to resolve a legal dispute. According to the opinion, Goldstone used a technique that I often employ, which is to send the complaint before you file it to give the other side a summary of the allegations and see if you can settle the matter short of litigation. Now, I could do the same in a letter, but providing the actual complaint I have found is far more effective because the other side knows you've already taken the time to prepare the complaint and you're ready to pull the trigger. But in this case, that technique worked against Goldstone because it left the court with the impression that the real purpose of the cross-complaint was to get Lands to walk away from his fees. When I send an unfiled complaint to a party seeking to settle before the complaint is filed, that's no different than a demand letter and it's an effort to avoid the cost of litigation. But when you send an attorney an unfiled cross-complaint, threatening to sue if he doesn't walk away from his fees, it's pretty clear that the purpose of the cross-complaint is not about having one's day in court. As the court put it, until the cross-complaint, there was no whiff of any claim that Lands had done anything wrong. It was as if the cross-complaint came out of thin air. So I think you can predict how this one came out. The trial court denied Goldstone's anti-slap motion, and that denial was affirmed on appeal. Now, it appears that Goldstone unsuccessfully attempted to get the opinion depublished, and then the parties entered into a confidential settlement. So the two primary takeaways from Lands are don't overplead your case. You know, I take over cases all the time where the previous attorney has alleged 12 causes of action and it seems to always include the inevitable RICO claim. Their reasoning is that it's best to allege 12 claims in case nine of them are found to be defective, or they think that the massive complaint will somehow intimidate the other side. But as Lands versus Goldstone demonstrates, you're exposed to a malicious prosecution action on all the claims that fail. And yes, The saying goes that the best defense is a good offense, but if the primary purpose of your offense, in other words, filing a cross-complaint, is to make the other side go away, well, that could be taken as an improper purpose and as evidence of malice. Speaking of overpleading, our second case is Carnezes v. Aries, decided by the 2nd District in January of 2016. In this case, the plaintiff alleged 22, count them, 22 causes of action against the defendants. The plaintiff, Elizabeth Carnezes, had given her friend's son, Tyler Ares, some money to invest, and she was unhappy with the result. Tyler Ares hired his uncle, Ashley David Posner, to handle the dispute, which at that point was really just discussions on how to handle the matter without litigation. So Carnezes ended up suing and named attorney Posner. Three of the 22 causes of action were against Posner. The three causes of action against Posner, maybe Posner, were all variants of fraud, with Carnezes claiming Posner had made misrepresentations to her. Posner filed an anti-slap motion claiming that all the communications between himself and Carnezes were related to the pending litigation and were therefore protected by the litigation privilege. The trial court agreed and granted the anti-slap motion on behalf of the attorney, and the granting of the anti-slap motion was affirmed on appeal. 
Well, that's all really straightforward and would not have warranted a published decision, but there were four interesting issues that came up in the case. The first had to do with the timeliness of the anti-slap motion. Posner was served with the first amended complaint in January 2012, and by August 2012, Posner had still not filed an anti-slap motion. He was certainly way past the 60 days, but Posner filed a motion to change venue from Santa Clara Superior Court to Los Angeles Superior Court. That motion was granted, and Posner then filed the anti-slap motion in Los Angeles Superior Court. Carnezes argued that the motion was untimely, but Rule of Court 3.1326, quote, grants a defendant who successfully obtains a change of venue 30 days to move to strike, demur, or otherwise plead if the plaintiff has not previously filed a response. So because the matter was transferred, the anti-slap motion was not late. Carnezes then argued that the anti-slap motion should have been denied because it was not heard within 30 days of filing. Now, way back in episode 3, I explained the steps I take to protect my anti-slap motions when the court won't schedule it to be heard within 30 days. In Carnezes v. Aries, the court just stated as a truism that an anti-slap motion cannot be denied because it is not heard within 30 days. And it held that an attorney is under no obligation to try and have it scheduled within 30 days. The court cited to Hall v. Time Warner, which is a 2007 case. But I would not trust that a trial court will reach the same conclusion, and I still recommend the steps I suggest in Episode 3. Here's the next issue, which, I, which is one I really enjoyed. Carnezes argued that an attorney cannot bring an anti-slap motion when sued because an attorney is a business and is therefore exempt from the anti-slap statute under Section 425.17. That argument has some surface appeal for about 10 seconds. An attorney is a business, but Section 425.17 requires more than just the defendant being a business. You have to show that the statement in question concerns the business's or a competitor's business. You have to show that it was made for the purpose of getting business and that the intended audience for the statement is an actual or potential buyer of the services. There's a lot more to Section 425.17, which I discuss in detail in Episode 8. But the court correctly realized that when Posner was communicating with Carnezes, it had nothing to do with his business. It was not for the purpose of getting business, and it was not directed to a potential customer. Finally, Carnezes argued that the anti-slap motion should have been denied, or at least that her rights were violated because she was not given a copy of the tentative ruling prior to the hearing. Carnezes attended the hearing telephonically, and as is standard practice in Los Angeles, you don't see the tentative ruling until you show up for the hearing. Heaven forbid that LA Superior Court should join us here in the electronic age and actually post their tentatives online. Yeah, yeah, I know a few of the LA courts do, but most don't. So since Posner attended the hearing, he had a copy of the tentative, but Carnezes did not. She said that put her at a disadvantage because she could not tailor her argument to the tentative ruling. Now, I think Cinderella's fairy godmother couldn't have tailored an argument that would have defeated the anti-slap motion, but that's just me. In any event, the court simply cited to the rule of court 3.1308 that permits tentative rulings, and it specifically states that tentative rulings can be announced on the day of the hearing. And speaking of tentative rulings, be sure to visit californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative, which will take you to the Bench Reporter Service, a sponsor of this podcast. This is a service that gives you access to every tentative ruling, basically in every court since 2014. Use the coupon code TOPLAWFIRM for a discount if you decide to try it out. So what are the important takeaways from Carnezes versus Aries? Well, there's authority for the position that the attorney has no duty to try to get an anti-slap motion heard within 30 days, but I wouldn't take the chance. There is uh, probably no scenario where Section 425.17 would apply to attorneys, and Los Angeles should post all of its tentative rulings, but it's not required to. Los Angeles Superior Court could be such a load of bollocks. Sorry, I've been binge-watching some British shows, so I pick up some of the phrases. 
it was the last Southern California court to give up on blue backing, and that was only because the fast track statute required courts to apply for exemptions, and one year they missed the deadline for asking for their precious bluebacks, so the legend goes. Three. The third case is Sweetwater Union School District versus Gilbane Building Company. In this case, the Sweetwater Union School District managed to get a proposition passed that authorized the sale of $644 million in bonds with money to be used to build and refurbish schools. The school district went through many steps to make sure the bidding process for the contractors was not tainted and eventually awarded supervision of the projects to certain entities. We'll just call them the defendants. Later, a criminal investigation was launched into the relationships of certain school district officials with the defendants. Basically, the criminal charges alleged that the defendants had bribed Sweetwater officials. Ultimately, many of the defendants pleaded guilty to the charges or pled no contest. They signed the plea papers setting forth their criminal conduct as part of the plea agreement. The school district then sued the defendants seeking to avoid certain contracts with those defendants on the basis of the bribe. So here's where it gets fun. The complaint alleged that defendants' representatives provided certain public officials as well as the officials' families and friends with a variety of gifts and financial inducements, including dinners at expensive restaurants, tickets to the theater and sporting events, including Charger games and to see the Jersey Boys, hotel accommodations, food, and tickets to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, airfare, hotel accommodations, wine tastings, a hot air balloon ride in Napa Valley, and significantly, monetary contributions to beauty pageants, charities, and campaigns on behalf of district officials. So the defendants were accused of doing all this, and the defendants responded with, well, duh, that's how the process works. And they filed an anti-slap motion arguing that lobbying and other activities seeking to influence the decisions of regulatory and legislative bodies falls within the definition of a protected act under the anti-slap statute. If that sounds crazy to you, just know that Sweetwater conceded the point that the conduct of the defendants implicated First Amendment concerns. In the earlier 2001 case of Paul for Council versus Hanyex, a candidate for city council sued defendants, alleging they had influenced the city election by making illegal contributions to his opponent. In that case, the defendants conceded they had made illegal campaign contributions, but argued that they were still protected by the anti-slap statute in any event because the contributions were in furtherance of their constitutional right of free speech. And the trial court actually agreed and granted the anti-slap motion. On appeal, the Court of Appeal reversed, stating that under Flatley v. Morrow, illegal conduct is not protected by the anti-slap statute. And since the defendants in that case had conceded the illegal behavior, it was not protected and the anti-slap motion should have been denied. But back to Sweetwater, the defendants in that case did not concede that they had done anything illegal, so the anti-slap statute did apply. But there was a twist. As you know, when you file an anti-slap motion, you of course support the anti-slap motion with declarations. Well, remember those plea agreements the defendants signed regarding the criminal action? Sweetwater used those executed plea agreements, where defendants admitted to their criminal conduct, in support of the anti-slap motion. Defendants said, what, 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 wait, Wait, no, those aren't declarations. Now, sometimes we forget the fact that declarations are intrinsically inadmissible hearsay. We only get to use declarations in support of motions because there are code sections that permit us to do so. And CCP section 2015.5 sets forth exactly what a declaration must contain in order to be valid. So the court examined the forms for the plea deals against the requirements of section 2015.5 and concluded that they were indistinguishable from declarations. Since defendants admitted in the plea deals under penalty of perjury that they had acted illegally, the anti-slap motions were properly denied because they cannot be used to protect illegal activity. 
It wasn't as obvious as it might appear, even though the defendants conceded with the plea deal documentation that their conduct was illegal, the court still examined whether the conduct actually did influence some in the school district. The court concluded that because the defendants ended up with the contracts, the connection between the bribes and the contracts were sufficient to show a probability of success by the school district. So Sweetwater is yet another case holding that the anti-slap statute does not protect illegal activity. In episode 18, I discussed a case where my client was sued for purportedly failing to accommodate a disabled tenant. And even though all my client did was issue three-day notices, the district court concluded that the anti-slap motion would not be granted as to the claim under the Fair Employment and Housing Act because while the three-day notices were protected under the litigation privilege, the gravamen of the claim was failure to accommodate. Our fourth case involves the same sort of concept. Crossroad Investors versus Federal National Mortgage Association was decided by the 3rd District in April 2016. Crossroads Investors borrowed $9 million to buy an apartment complex. The loan included a prepayment penalty if Crossroads paid off the loan early or if it defaulted and Fannie Mae accelerated the loan. Crossroads defaulted, Fannie Mae accelerated the loan, and initiated non-judicial foreclosure proceedings. As required by Civil Code Section 2924C, the notice of default served on Crossroads by Fannie Mae informed Crossroads that it could reinstate the loan by tendering the amount owed to bring its payments current no later than five business days before the scheduled date of the sale. That same notice provided that Crossroads could learn how much it owed by requesting the information from Fannie Mae. Well, Crossroads found someone willing to buy the property, but to realize any real profit from the sale, it needed Fannie Mae to waive the prepayment penalty. Fannie Mae refused to do so. So the day before the foreclosure sale, Crossroads filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It then became a race in the bankruptcy court. Fannie Mae sought relief from the bankruptcy stay while Crossroads was trying to get a plan approved that would do away with the prepayment penalty. While all of this was going on, Crossroads repeatedly asked for the payoff amount. It even sent an interrogatory to Fannie Mae in the bankruptcy proceeding asking for the payoff amount. Fannie Mae provided only a BS answer stating that the way the interrogatory was worded It was asking for a future amount that Fannie Mae simply could not calculate. Ultimately, the court rejected the attempts to take away the prepayment premium, and Fannie Mae's relief from the stay became effective on May 15, 2012. Note that date, May 15. On May 17, two days later, the attorney for Crossroads contacts the attorney for Fannie Mae and asks for a payoff mount again and asks that if there's going to be a sale that he be provided with a notice of sale. On May 22, the attorney calls the Fannie Mae attorney again and asks again, for the amount to cure the default. Crossroads was ready, willing, and able to pay the full amount requested by Fannie Mae upon receipt of the demand. On May 24, Fannie Mae sold the apartment complex without giving notice to Crossroads. Crossroads sued Fannie Mae and the trustee under a number of theories, including wrongful foreclosure, fraud, and breach contract. Fannie Mae responded with an anti-slap motion contending that the lawsuit was nothing but an attempt to punish Fannie Mae for exercising its rights in the bankruptcy action but the trial court denied the anti-slap motion. It found that Fannie Mae had failed to show that Crossroads' action arose from protected activity. As it stated, quote, The gravamen of plaintiff's complaint is its contention that defendant wrongfully foreclosed upon the subject property in an illegally conducted non-judicial foreclosure. Fannie Mae appealed the denial of its anti-slap motion. Here are the points I found interesting in this appellate decision. Fannie Mae argued that while it is true that Crossroads repeatedly asked for the payoff amount, that was a matter being considered by the bankruptcy court in conjunction with the whole prepayment premium issue. Fannie Mae wanted to cast the suit as an end run around the bankruptcy proceeding, seeking to have those matters reconsidered. But the Court of Appeal easily disposed of that argument. As the court put it, 
The point of Crossroads' case is that Fannie Mae never responded to the payoff requests as required by law. Thus, Crossroads was suing Fannie Mae for its silence, and the anti-slap statute does not protect silence. And here's the second important point. Fannie Mae was claiming that the foreclosure sale was protected under the litigation privilege. All those annoying requests by Crossroads just trying to get the payoff amount were related to the foreclosure sale and therefore fell under the privilege. But hold on, Maude, the court said. How is a non-judicial foreclosure sale litigation? You just provide notice, sell the property, and Bob's your uncle. The court concluded that a judicial foreclosure is a private contractual proceeding rather than an official government proceeding or action and is not covered by the litigation privilege or the anti-slap statute. The Court of Appeal concluded that the anti-slap motion was properly denied. Now, that's a pretty narrow holding on some pretty specific facts, but as I always say, don't shortchange the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. The Fannie Mae attorneys were like, well, clearly this is litigation. We're giving notices and holding an auction, but it wasn't. Five! <laughs> For our fifth and final case, we go to JM Manufacturing versus Philip and Cohen, decided in May 2016 by the Second District. The facts of this one are pretty simple. The law firm of Phillips and Cohen successfully represented governmental clients in a false claims act against JM Manufacturing, and that's a company that manufactures PVC pipe. It was a bifurcated trial, so the issue of damages had not yet been decided, but the jury found that JM had knowingly misrepresented to the Phillips and Cohen's government clients over a 10-year period that its PVC pipe had been manufactured and tested to meet certain standards. The attorneys at Phillips and Cohen were so proud of themselves that the very next day they issued a press release about their victory. In that press release, Phillips and Cohen started with the headline, JM Eagle faces billions in damages after jury finds JM liable for making and selling faulty water system pipes. The press release also said that a federal jury unanimously found that JM manufactured and sold pipe that was faulty, substandard, weak, and shoddy. Well, JM had just been through the same trial and they didn't view the jury verdict the same way. JM claimed that the issue decided by the federal jury was whether JM had falsely represented uniform compliance with the industry standards. Whether its pipe was substandard or defective was not an issue in phase one of the federal litigation, and the federal plaintiffs had never proved the pipe sold was substandard or defective. On that basis, JM sued for defamation and trade libel. Phillips and Cohen responded with an anti-slap motion. Phillips and Cohen argued that the press release fell under the anti-slap statute because the statements referred to litigation of national importance and that JM could not show a probability of prevailing on the claims because the press release represented a true and fair report and or was an opinion. In deciding the anti-slap motion, the trial court basically punted. The trial court decided that since whether the press release was a true and fair report of the jury's verdicts was, was a question of fact... It had to be put to the jury and could not be decided on an anti-slap motion. Additionally, the court agreed with JM that the jury had never concluded that the pipes were faulty. Now, I want to take a short sidebar here. I was just making up, I'm just making up numbers here, but let's say the industry standards for a PVC pipe require that it be able to handle 200 pounds of pressure. Well, according to the jury's verdict, JM represented that the pipe could meet the industry standard. And also, according to the jury's verdict, the jury concluded that JM had made false claims about compliance with those standards. So I would read that to mean the pipes are faulty, but as you'll see in a minute, there's a little twist that does away with that seemingly obvious conclusion. So the trial court denied the anti-slap motion, and Phillips and Cohen appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion. The Court of Appeal stated that Civil Code Section 47 provides what it referred to as a bridge privilege between the litigation privilege on the one hand and the fair report privilege on the other. 
This bridge privilege protects fair and true reports to the press of things that were said or occurred in official proceedings. So the court undertook an analysis of whether Phillips and Cohen's press release fell under that fair report privilege. Two of the justices concluded that the press release properly reflected what happened at trial if you took it to be a discussion of the evidence and the verdict. Although the headline said that the jury found the pipe to be substandard, which was not entirely true, the two justices felt that the body of the press release then put it in context, and that made everything okay. Quote, Phillips and Cohen may be guilty of self-promotion and puffery, but its description of the evidence at trial and the jury's special verdict in the November 15, 2013 press release falls comfortably within the permissible degree of flexibility and literary license afforded communications to the media concerning judicial proceedings. The substance of its report was accurate. The release was absolutely privileged under Civil Code Section 47, Subdivision D, unquote. But here's a fact I haven't given you yet, and this is the reason that there's a very long dissenting opinion. The reason I think this was decided improperly, despite my earlier comments, is that during closing argument, counsel for J.M. had argued that there was no evidence whatsoever that J.M.'s pipes were substandard. Okay, so during closing, J.M.'s counsel stands up and says, you haven't seen any evidence that our pipes are substandard. So in response to that, Phillips and Cohen stands up, the, the attorney from Phillips and Cohen, and said he was absolutely stunned to hear any reference to substandard pipes. As he put it, this is not a products liability case. It is not about substandard products. So as the dissenting opinion put it, clearly Phillips and Cohen understood the implication of calling pipes substandard even before a jury that had received weeks of education about the False Claims Acts and and industry standards, and even without a prior thematic reference to the pipes as faulty. So Phillips and Cohen specifically argued to the jury that this was not a case about faulty pipes, and made sure the jury understood that they were not deciding whether the pipes were substandard. Then, after winning, Phillips and Cohen issues a press release where the first sentence is, and there's some ellipses in this sentence, but here's how the dissenting opinion set forth the first sentence, a federal jury unanimously agreed last night that JM manufactured and sold to government entities substandard plastic pipe that was used in water and sewer systems. It is a little disingenuous to argue to the jury that the case has nothing to do with substandard pipe and then announce to the world that the jury found the pipe was substandard, in my never-to-be-a-humble opinion. Citing the California Supreme Court decision of Reader's Digest Association versus Superior Court, the dissent stated, A report is fair and true if it accurately describes the substance or gist of the reported matter. A publisher is not required to quote the source of the information verbatim. In this sense, a publisher has a literary license to use words that fairly and accurately express the meaning of what was stated or done. A reasonable amount of breathing space is necessary to protect freedom of expression, but the license does not justify altering or distorting the gist of the matter reported on. The line is crossed if the publication is such a departure that it produces a different effect on the reader. A reasonable jury could find that Phillips and Cohen crossed that line here. All right! So by the power vested in me as the host of the California Slap Law podcast, I'm going to overturn the holding of JM Manufacturing Company, Inc. versus Phillips & Cohen on the following basis. If the law firm had proven that JM lied about the quality of the pipe and then stated in the press release that the pipe was substandard, I think that would be within the gist of what occurred or at most a matter of opinion. But since the law firm argued at trial that the case had nothing to do with the substandard pipes, I think it steps over the line to then claim that the jury found the pipes were substandard. 
Here's the way the defamation analysis works in terms of deciding what the judge or jury decides. In deciding whether a statement is privileged as a fair and true report, a jury must decide this privilege issue unless the undisputed facts permit but one conclusion. In other words, the court can decide the matter if, as a matter of law, the press release is not susceptible of a defamatory meaning in the mind of an average reader. As the California Supreme Court put in McCloyd v. Tribune Publishing Company, whether or not the article is reasonably susceptible to a defamatory interpretation is a question for the court, and if so, whether or not it was so understood is a question for the jury. I think the trial court got it right in this case. The press release was susceptible to a defamatory interpretation and therefore should have gone to the jury. I hope you found this summary of cases to be helpful. In addition to what we learned relating to anti-slap law, we saw that overpleading your case can lead to a claim for malicious prosecution, even if you win. If you are sued for malicious prosecution, malice can be inferred if it is clear that the extracting a settlement, not deciding the case based on the merits, was your true motive. And if you're going to issue a press release about your court victories, make sure they are accurate. And of course, the LA Superior Court is a load of bollocks. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. In the first opinion I just discussed, Lands v. Goldstone, the Court of Appeals subtly takes Goldstone's appellate counsel to task for not citing to or distinguishing from the primary cases having to do with malicious prosecution. The, the court actually starts out its opinion by stating that Goldstone's opening brief does not even mention Bertero, which the Court of Appeal apparently thought was the seminal case on the subject. When you take an appeal, it's easy to fall into the trap of just doing your legal research thing, searching for cases that support your argument, and citing to those cases. But it's also important to determine which are the most cited cases on a particular issue. In the anti-slap context, for example, there are a number of cases that have discussed illegal conduct, but if that's going to be your argument, you'd better mention Flatley v. Morrow, the Supreme Court case that set the standard. In one of the most painful oral arguments before the Court of Appeal I've ever witnessed, one of the justices asked the attorney about the seminal case on a particular area of law, which the attorney had apparently never heard of. So the the justice basically summarized the holding of that case and asked the attorney to distinguish the facts of his case against that seminal case. The attorney struggled along for a minute and the justice interrupted and asked, did you see any of the game last night? That was back when the Lakers were a good team. And the attorney, not realizing that the justice was basically saying, Uh, Dear Mr. Attorney, you should have spent last night preparing for this argument rather than watching the game. If you had done so, you would know about that seminal case. The attorney actually proceeded to discuss the game he'd watched the previous night. It It was really bad. So make sure you can discuss and distinguish the seminal cases so you don't find yourself in that position. Now, in the natural course of things, if you go deep enough with your research, then you'll usually get a feel for the seminal cases because those will, of course, be the cases that all the other cases are citing to. But you can take it to the next level and figure out in your legal research service, whether it's Westlaw or Lexis or Fastcase or whatever, they usually have a method by which you can find the most cited cases for a given headnote or keysight, for example. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.